This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Uh, Lord, teach us to pray. This request of the disciples can be thought of as something like a biblical, biblical evidence that while many, if not all people, have the desire for prayer, the desire to encounter God, we all need to be taught. We need to learn. We need teachers. We need people to help guide us in our life of prayer. And this talk this evening, Teach Us to Pray, Silence and Solitude, is the second in a series uh, of talks uh, um, that I, I'm giving. And if you're paying attention, you'll notice that the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray. And I just say, teach us to pray uh, for these. Uh, The disciples are bringing this request to Jesus. Uh, And that is a wonderful place to reflect on a life of prayer, to learn from, probably the best. Uh, But my hope for these talks is a little humbler, to consider the life and the teaching and the practice of some significant prayers uh, throughout church history uh, and see what they might have to teach us as people who need help and guidance on what it means to pray. And this evening I want to look at look to a German theologian and a Christian martyr, a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is here, uh, and in particular his writings on silence and solitude. They show up in the third chapter of a fairly well-known publication by him, book by him called Life Together. Are people familiar with this? Have they heard about this? If they are, we could just stop now and take questions. Uh, just kidding. Um, but, so we'll, we'll be going there. And what I've grown to appreciate more and more about the spirituality and the theology that animates life together. And I, I will say, there are some parts in life together that I just kind of furl my <laughs> furl my brow at or sort of scratch my chin at and wonder what exactly uh, Bonhoeffer is, is, is after. Uh, but in this, part of what he does here, I think he masterfully holds together components of our life with God that are so often presented or assumed to be opposites. On one hand, he sees the need for a rich, honest, unsentimental life in deep community, being with our brothers and sisters. But he also sees the need of a rich, unsentimental, honest life in solitude, being away from our brothers and sisters, but being with God. We flourish best, I think, when we're able to move with ease uh, between deep community and deep solitude, the things he wants to hold together. And I can only speak for myself, but I tend to go in the shallow end of both pools, kind of like superficial fun community, and just fleeting moments alone where I'm not distracted by my phone, or or many of the other like good things in life. 
But Jesus' life, I do think, models this back-and-forth dynamic. We see fairly regularly throughout his life, he would get away from the crowds, he would get away from his disciples, his friends, his family, and he would enter into the eremos, which is a Greek word that is translated a bunch of different ways in the New Testament. And when a word is translated a bunch of different ways in different translations, it's usually a clue that it's a rich word. It's a significant word. It's a word to sit with. It's sometimes called the quiet place, the lonely place, the wild place, the desolate place. And he goes into these places with the purpose and the intent of praying, of being alone with his Father. And as one looks to the whole of the Christian tradition, there's a lot of wonderful writers and practitioners of silence and solitude in their life with God And I'll even mention some of them and put them a little bit in dialogue with Bonhoeffer later. But his ability to hold together the importance and the need of concrete Christian community and the importance of what he would call, what he calls the day alone, silence and solitude, I think makes him somewhat unique. And also the fact that he's a Protestant talking about this. Uh, Often in this literature, our people that reflect on this come from the Orthodox and the Catholic tradition. So to give you an idea of where we're going to go tonight, we are going to spend actually a lot of time with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This was not my intent when, or my my thought when I first signed up to give this lecture, Uh, but I've grown fairly captivated by him. And I want to tell more of the story of his life leading up to the setting of the writing of Life Together. Then we will camp out there, especially the third chapter, where he speaks about the necessity of silence and solitude in a life of faith. And then from there, we will do uh, cover the rest of his life. And then we'll have some time together So uh, to discuss at the end. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer was born in 1906 to Carl and Paula Bonhoeffer. He was the sixth of eight children. He was the older in a set of twins. Uh, if you can spot him here, he's the blonde with uh, Bangs, uh, Dietrich, and this is Sabine, his his twin. And the Bonhoeffer home was very much on the upper end of the upper crust uh, of his day. One biographer notes uh, the presence of many maids uh, were in the house to help Paula raise the children. Carl was a noted uh, psychiatrist. He was loving, but was more of a distant, stereotypical, stoic German father who was preoccupied with his work, which by the time Dietrich was six had brought them into an exclusive suburb of of Berlin. They lived kind of with the creme de la creme of their day. Uh, Paula was warm, she was devout, and she was very present to her children. She chose to oversee their education the children were given uh, the best that was available in, in their day. And they also received their mother's care and attention and direction in their education. They all became really, really intelligent, highly cultured uh, people, masters in uh, knowing science, literature, history, and music. And Bonhoeffer and Dietrich, uh, in particular, loved music. He would always play the piano when the family would gather to sing, which they did quite regularly. And when uh, he was he was evidently quite good at this because when he was 13 and announced 
to his family his desire to become a theologian. Uh, They were mostly disappointed that he was not going to pursue a life of music. Uh, Dietrich's desire to become a theologian was a surprise to many in the family. One of his older brothers evidently laughed out loud when young Dietrich announced this. Uh, But also it was a surprise because even though Paula had chosen to give them sort of standard Lutheran uh, training at home, the family never went to church except maybe on Christmas and Easter. They did not pray before meals. They were not really religious at all. And Carl here uh, was less of a believer and more of a high culture disinterested agnostic. So... Many think what caused Dietrich's decision to become a theologian at such a young age was precipitated by a family tragedy. Not long before he announced this, Dietrich's older brother, Walter, uh, died in the First World War. And as you can imagine, the tragedy shook the family to its core. But in the process of sort of mourning and uh, burying Walter, Dietrich was gifted Walter's Bible which he kept with him the rest of his life. This was the Bible that he read. This is the Bible he meditated on, and he cherished. Uh, and so while the announcement surprised and disappointed many of his family members, from the very, very little that we know of Dietrich's early childhood, of the young Bonhoeffer, we know he was fascinated, if not fixated, on matters of the utmost importance. The sort of things theologians really should be giving their time to, but they don't always do. So in a a beautiful, insightful, very detailed, in some ways significantly flawed, I think, biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer by Charles Marsh, who is a professor at the University of Virginia, uh, called Strange Glory, He uh, he begins the biography in this way that gives, I think, just this lovely fairly intimate, tender uh, window into the mind of young Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So I'm going to read a little bit here, uh, so bear, bear with me. When he was a young child and his family rented a sprawling villa near the university clinics in Breslau, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his twin Sabine lay awake at night trying to imagine eternity. The ritual eventually became a game with each t- child concentrating on the word, to clear the mind of distractions. Eternity. Ewigkeit. Sabine found the word very long and gruesome. Dietrich found it majestic. An awesome word, he called it. Sometimes he would picture himself on his deathbed, surrounded by family and friends reclining on the threshold of heaven. He knew what his last words would be, and sometimes rehearsed them aloud, though he dared not reveal them to anyone. He hoped to welcome death as an expected guest. He did not want to be taken by surprise. But sometimes when he went to bed, convinced that death would come that very night, he would grow lightheaded, and the walls of his bedroom would reel about as if he were at the axis of a carousel. He imagined himself rushing from sister to brother, from father to mother, pleading for help. The prospect of it happening now of his vanishing tonight into the vast mysterium, felt so real he had to bite his tongue to reassure himself that he was still among the living, that he would feel mortal pain. At such moments, he worried that he suffered from an incurable fear. 
When the twins got separate bedrooms, they devised a code for keeping up their metaphysical games. Dietrich would drum lightly on the wall with his fingers, an admonitory knock announcing that it was time once again to ponder eternity. A further tap signaled a new reflection on the solemn theme, and so it went back and forth until one of them discerned the final silence. Usually, it was Dietrich. Um, we, um, we, uh, also, what we know of young Dietrich, he loved being in the woods, he loved birds, he loved animals, he loved adventuring, he loved mushrooms in particular, collecting them, cataloging them, and ultimately eating them. But his favorite game to play as a child was baptism, uh, where he would baptize. Um, so some five years after Walter's death, when he was 13, now he's 18, Dietrich is accepted to theological studies at the University of Berlin. Oh, I forgot to put these pictures up. I apologize. This is another picture of Dietrich and Sabina's children. This is a picture of them the last time that they were together. Uh, Sabine married a man who was a Christian but of Jewish descent, so they ultimately had to flee Germany later. And we'll see Dietrich Bonhoeffer took two trips to America, and on his second trip to America on the way home, he stopped, I believe, in Oxford, uh, and this was the last time he spent with uh, Sabine, who was his closest friend until she was engaged. At that point, they had um, a little bit of a... Not a, a falling out, but distance was made. But here's young Dietrich, who finds uh, <clears throat> finds himself accepted for theological studies at the University of Berlin, which is the epicenter of Protestant liberal theology at the time. The Bonhoeffers were family friends and neighbors to the towering figure of German liberal theology, Adolf von Harnack, uh, whose lectures Dietrich regularly attended, and they would occasionally commute together to school. Um, now, Charles Marsh, in, uh, in, in um, A Strange Glory, describes the liberal theology of the day as tending to reduce Christian doctrine to its functionality in human matters, as if doctrines were true only to the extent they were useful. So you think about it like, like this. This is a crude, simplistic way to say it, but it, it would be like saying it doesn't really matter if Jesus rose from the dead in history. What matters is if it feels like he rose from the dead in your heart, and it gives you something to get through your day. It has that sort of power to it. So this way of hollowing out traditional Christian forms of their substance was actually suspect, uh, though it was very popular, uh, suspect to this young, intelligent, precocious Bonhoeffer. That is at least in part because he fell under the influence of a Swiss theologian who had made himself the arch enemy of this sort of academic liberal theology, a guy named Karl Barth. Now, we can get quickly lost in um, dense theological weeds that I can't navigate myself, so I don't want to camp out here uh, too long, but it's just worth noting, apart from the fact that Dietrich did not really follow the path that most of his professors, or or follow the sort of theology that his professors were uh, interested in, or interested in. It's worth noting that... um, There is one aspect, really, of this uh, hollowed-out liberal German theology uh, that is worth keeping in mind, and that is the idea of a messianic people. So in the Old Testament, uh, the nation of Israel were God's chosen people to bless the world. And in the New Testament, it becomes 
a multicultural, cross-cultural group of men and women from any tribe, any tongue, any nation, who are now can be God's people if they if they are in Christ. But in Germany around this time, it was restricting again. It was back. The chosen people really were the German people. German culture was the means by which God would bless the world. Within uh, less than 15 years, nearly all of Bonhoeffer's teachers and colleagues at the university would lecture while wearing a swastika. And they taught an Aryanized, anti-Semitic, nationalistic spin on the Christian faith. Now, young Bonhoeffer completed a 380-page doctorate uh, called Communio Sanctorum at 21. Uh, And he then took a position, after finishing this, as an assistant pastor to a German Lutheran congregation in Barcelona. So he's leaving Germany to go to Barcelona. And he stayed there for a year. And in case this newly... PhD, 21-year-old, sounds like a superhuman who's resisting the liberal impulses of his professors and writing way more pages than many of us read in a year. The correspondence between Bonhoeffer and the head pastor in Barcelona, who he's supposed to go and help, reveals um, a young man not so hungry to get in the trenches of ministry uh, and work alongside the poor uh, of Barcelona, but someone who is deeply concerned with what sort of wardrobe he should assemble. In particular, what sort of men's suits were in fashion at the moment in Barcelona. Uh, Whether he would need special athletic wear to join a sports club, and whether or not there would be occasions that he would need to bring a suit that had tails. As you could imagine, a hard-working pastor, uh, expatriate pastor, really didn't have time for these sorts of things and didn't know how to answer Bonhoeffer and is clearly frustrated with him. Uh, Bonhoeffer delays his arrival in Barcelona by months. He keeps putting it off. He keeps having week-long going-away parties. Um, And then finally, on his way to Barcelona, on the train, he realizes the train is going to stop in Paris. And he's like, I'm in Paris I might as well spend a week's vacation in Paris. When am I going to be in Paris again? So without corresponding, uh, he delays another week and spends uh, uh, some time in Paris on Carl and Paula's Deutschmark. Um, and it's worth just noting uh, that Bonhoeffer's upbringing and early life was one that we could really call pampered, if not outright spoiled. He comes across as outrageously oblivious uh, in the correspondence with this pastor in in Barcelona. And instances like the spur of the moment week's vacation in Paris, while no doubt uh, due to his young age, it's a window into behavior that would characterize much of his adult life, uh, really up to his years in prison. He would He lived very much on the move, on the go. He never did his own laundry. He would post his laundry home and have his mother and his mother's servants do his 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 laundry and send it back to him. When he starts the he when he leads this we'll get to it, this sort of underground seminary, this resistance seminary, kind of on the fringes of uh, where, where, where the um, national socialism can can see him. His father gives him an Audi uh, convertible that he loves to go joyriding in. Uh, so he's he's someone who uh, was from wealth and the generosity of his parents afforded him 
the possibility of partaking in many of the finer things in life, which most of people in his um, position usually couldn't afford. And this is one of my favorite images of Dietrich Bonhoeffer from his life. When he was in Barcelona, he sent this postcard home to his parents. This is his head on a matador uh, um, that he somehow had made and sent to his parents. So these are two contrasting images, the matador and the, the studious young man. So after his year in Spain, uh, he returned uh, to Germany to do postdoctoral work, uh, where he wrote another dissertation. And when he finished it, he received a year-long fellowship in New York City. He went to Union Theological Seminary. And he's somewhere in this picture. I think this is him. Uh, and I don't really know uh, many, but evidently there's some very prestigious uh, Protestant American liberal theologians amongst this group here. And it was this year in New York was deeply profound for young Bonhoeffer, but not in any of the ways he expected. Bonhoeffer was profoundly underwhelmed and unimpressed with what he saw as the emptiness of American liberal theology, which Union was the center of. He felt like no one was talking about theology at this seminary, and no one really cared about Jesus that much. But at the same time, he was really compelled. There's a movement uh, at the time called the Social Gospel that worked hard among the poor and working class in New York City. And he saw them live out Christian convictions in ways that he'd never seen back in Germany. And this year at Union was not what he hoped for academically or theologically. He did have a profound encounter with the church through Harlem's uh, Abyssinia Baptist Church, a prominent African-American church that thrilled him and excited him. It was there for the first time that he was exposed to a living form of faith that was theologically orthodox and socially engaged. This is just a picture of Harlem from somewhere around the time. This is a picture of uh, Bonhoeffer in Cuba. He went to Havana that, that year for Christmas, on Christmas break. The man was on the move. Um, he wrote home during this time, though, that only among the black church was there any real religion in the U.S., And on top of that, the consummate lover of music, Bonhoeffer was immediately taken with the music of the black church. In fact, when he returned home, he did so with a crate of records of spirituals and gospel music that he brought with him and played with him for the rest of his life. There's accounts of his students later saying he would go to Bonhoeffer's house and he'd have wine and whatever, and he'd be playing this this, this spiritual music, this gospel music that no one in Germany knew about. This was long before Spotify and sort of curated playlists. And as he ventured out of New York City, he went through the American South. He was appalled by what he saw, the systemic racism that characterized America. He actually called America a land without reformation. And he recounts uh, the shock, really, of being refused service in a restaurant in Washington, D.C., because he was dining with an African-American friend, or at least he wanted to. So Bonhoeffer discerned in the black church where he attended, he led Bible studies for children and for women. He, he saw that an activist faith that stood firm on historic Christian beliefs, but compelled Christians to work to make this world a better place, 
to struggle for justice. And this was his real frustration with both most of, uh, of Protestant liberalism that he saw in Germany and in, in at Union, just up the road from there. He thought they had abandoned the most powerful basis of a criticism of oppression, the life and ethical teachings of Jesus, in particular the Sermon on the Mount. So in June of thir- 1931, his year there is done. He actually made it all the way down to Mexico and back on a road trip, an epic road trip with this French guy. Um, it was also a French guy. Um, but he left the U.S. and he spoke of being ready to put away childish things. By that, he meant primarily academic prestige, career ambitions, and instead he was committed to search for Christian and Jewish resources for peacemaking, dissent, and civil courage, what he knew would be desperately needed in a Germany that was falling under the spell and the control of Hitler. But this year in New York had been really a tremendous year from him. for him. He goes back. Uh, he takes up duties as a lecturer at the University of Berlin in theology. He becomes ordained. He spends a lot of time working uh, with youth uh, in Berlin, But he really started to throw himself into the burgeoning ecumenical movement across Europe. Is that word familiar to people, ecumenical? Working across denominational lines, working with leaders, or connecting, networking with leaders. Bonhoeffer is evidently the most gregarious, outgoing extrovert you could imagine. He's always networking. He's always trying to make connections. But he wanted to make these connections because he saw the need for the church to be connected to something outside of the national church in Germany. The national church in Germany was more or less under control, pretty, pretty, if, if not by this point, not long after, of the Reich. Um, they, who, who have laws or rules like, if you are not of pure Aryan descent, you cannot be baptized, you cannot serve in the church. Uh, and, and Bonhoeffer sees these as theological problems not just social problems, as deeply troubling theological problems, and the church needs to say something to it. So he gets involved with what's called the confessing church, which is not, which is counter to the, uh, the state church. And I think he sees, his, again, his work on behalf of the confessing church, making, uh, making connections in, through the ecumenical movement as a significant part of his life's work. Now, by January 30th of 1933, Hitler is named Reich Chancellor of Germany. And two days later, a young Bonhoeffer is offered the chance to address the nation over the radio. And he offers a withering theological critique of the Fuhrer. He doesn't hold back. Um, But he's cut off before he's able to finish. He's not cut off because of what he said, as inflammatory as it was. He's cut off because he went way over time, uh, and he wasn't able to control himself and keep it to the time that he was supposed to. But this was a time of tremendous cultural upheaval and confusion, I think for many people at this point. Hitler's vision gained more and more momentum, and it was really it was working into every every aspect of life. And a few years later, Bonhoeffer commented on a radical change that had happened in his own life that we don't really, he doesn't, there's one, one letter that we know of that he talks about this. And I, I found it in um, this book called Theologian of Resistance, The Life and Thought of Dietrich Bonhoeffer by Christian Teitz, who is 
a professor of systematic theology at Zurich. Um, and it's, it's a bit of a, like, a intellectual... It's a gr- there's a lot of writing on, on Bonhoeffer, and this one's only like 100 pages, 120 pages. And it's, it's very helpful. But right before, right, right around this time, Bonhoeffer um, speaks about a radical change that happened in his life. So he begins here by talking in the past tense, and I'll just read through this. I threw myself into my work in an extremely unchristian and not at all humble fashion. A rather crazy element of ambition, which some people noticed in me, made my life difficult and withdrew me from the love and trust of those around me. At that time, I was terribly alone and left to myself. It was quite bad. But then something different came, something that has changed and transformed my life to this very day. For the first time, I came to the Bible. That, too, is an awful thing to say. I had often preached. He has his Ph.D. in theology at this point, too. I had seen a great deal of the church and had spoken and written about it, and yet I was not yet a Christian, but rather an utterly wild and uncontrolled fashion, my own master. I do not know that at that time I turned the cause of Jesus Christ into an advantage for myself, for my crazy vanity. I pray to God that it will never happen again. Nor had I ever prayed, or had done so only very rarely. Despite this isolation, I was quite happy with myself. The Bible, especially the Sermon on the Mount, freed me from all of this. Since then, everything has changed. I felt this plainly, and so to have other people around me. This was a great liberation. It became clear to me that the life of a servant of Jesus Christ must belong to the church. And step by step, it became clear to me how far it must go. Then came the crisis of 1933. That's Hitler becoming chancellor. This strengthened me and it. I also met others who shared the same goal. For me, everything now depended on a renewal of the church and of the pastoral station. So he, he goes, it's very interesting, a theologian, uh, pastor who is not a Christian, and then becomes a Christian through his encounter with the Bible. Um, and it marked a change in his life from that point on personal daily meditation on scripture passages and silence and solitude characterized his life it was something that that a practice that stuck with him over the following years as the influence of the nazi party grew uh and the national churches and eventually even resistance churches uh in germany caved to the demands of the reich like i was saying before this aryan clause bonhoeffer actually left germany again for a year and a half, he pastored this. I think this is on somewhere like down in Brighton, but this is him in England. Um, and he went for a year and a half to pastor German congregations in London. This move to some around him was seen as a complete betrayal to the resistance. But in April of 1935, he actually returned to Germany uh, because he had been asked to oversee an experiment in educating new pastors. Uh, to oversee the Confessing Church's Preacher's Seminary. Um, and uh, it's at that experience that his little book, Life Together, that we'll be reflecting on, uh, comes out of. And in preparation for establishing this small, off-the-radar seminary, 
Bonhoeffer, before leaving England, traveled all across England, visiting all sorts of Christian communities, and in particular monasteries. And he spoke of his desire for this seminary to be less like the university setting, which he had thrived and excelled in, but ultimately been disappointed by, and instead to be something of what he called a new monasticism, an ordered communal life of committed to the way of Jesus, in particular, following the Sermon on the Mount. So Bonhoeffer, along with these 23 male students and uh, uh, this woman who helped cook, um, all future pastors moved into an unfurnished former estate house in a little village of Finkenwalde. The house needed quite a bit of uh, work, from the boiler to the roof, Its small library was composed mostly of Bonhoeffer's own private collection. And these students, uh, who look in some ways pretty unimpressive. This is the first class. This is the second class. This is the third class. There is the fourth class with Bonhoeffer, signed for Fingenwalde. They only had four total before it was shut down. All, all of these pastors that we saw are, are basically throwing away a comfortable career working in a Reich church uh, to follow Jesus into obscurity, to follow Jesus into suffering. Many of these men uh, died. Many of these men were unable ultimately to avoid mandatory military draft and had to work against their conscience and join uh, the Nazis or be executed. Uh, the standard punishment for undermining the military was a bullet in the back of the head. So it's, it's, in some ways it's like a funny group of picture, a funny picture of these guys, especially this one, this guy in shorts, <laughs> just kind of cracks me up. Um, but I think they're actually fairly, like, inspiring, remarkable, remarkable men. Um, and these students, these potential future pastors in the confessing church, who are on a path to become political dissidents. Bonhoeffer believed that along with learning theology, with learning Bible, practical theology, all the sort of stuff a seminary does, these men would desperately need spiritual nourishment. They would need prayer, they would need Bible study, and meditation on scripture. He saw these as essential matters to expand their moral imagination for what the moment and what the future moments would call for. Now, a day in Finkelwald was highly structured. In addition to the theological lectures, if anyone's read uh, The Cost of Discipleship or Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, it was at Finkenwald that he gave the lectures. That um, Those were sort of, sort of the backbone of the New Testament class. So in addition to theological training, common spiritual life was central. And time was set uh, each morning for 30 minutes of silent individual prayer. There's also silent prayer at the end of the day. Uh, There were structured discussion times. There were meals taken together. There was free time for leisure or for sport. Uh, They even had tea times uh, in the afternoon, time for group singing. And they would often spend time listening to Dietrich's collection of gospels and spirituals from his time in Harlem. Manual work was also part of each day. Uh, and work was mostly fixing the house or working in the garden. And Dietrich developed uh, a reputation for being absent during work times. He found ways to sneak out and do other 
important things. Also, while he was here, he would leave, actually, for long periods because he was still highly involved in the ecumenical movement. So he was in and out, especially with his Audi uh, convertible. But it was his. It was the times of silence and solitude which Bonhoeffer demanded each morning that proved to be quite difficult, but ultimately, I think, fairly formative uh, for, for, for these men uh, who were there. So, uh, again, I'm going to read from Christian Tait's book on him, but this is a quote from Eberhard Bethke, who became, who I believe is this guy right here. Uh, oh, no, sorry, this guy right here. And um, became Bonhoeffer's best friend. And the reason we're still probably talking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a large part because of Bethke, who wrote a massive biography uh, on him. And Anyway, um, it's a different story, but... Bethke said this um, about, he, he's recounting many of their experience of this half an hour each morning of solid, uh, solitude and silence. He says, some people said they went to sleep. Others that they spent the half hour working on sermons since they had absolutely no idea what else to do. Others admitted that half an hour's recollection was too much for them and their mind wandered so they read commentaries instead. Other seminaries were already regarding us as a joke a place, they said, where ordinance had to meditate while they brushed their teeth. Um, there were other confessing seminaries that I guess often made fun of uh, Finkenwalde uh, for this. So they, they were frustrated with Dietrich, and they had a large meeting together where they said, "This we'd like this to change, to which he said no. Uh, but he did lean in one way. He said they could have a group time of meditating on Scripture together, one day a week. Uh, that was his concession. Uh, in late August of, of 1937, about two years after it had started, the Reich demanded that the confessing church's seminaries close. And on September 28th, the Gestapo arrived, and Finkenwalde was shut down two years after it started. Uh, in this really lovely book on Bonhoeffer's life, the, of all the resources on Bonhoeffer, this was my favorite by far. Keys to Bonhoeffer's House. It's written by a woman named Laura Fabricki, who is a diplomat's wife, and they had they were assigned uh, uh, to Berlin, and she became a tour guide at Bonhoeffer's house. And so she tells the, the, her story of getting to know Bonhoeffer alongside Bonhoeffer's story, uh, alongside tales of doing... Um, giving tours alongside sort of cultural criticism. It's a wonderful book. It's incredibly well written. But she says this. Um, um, so I highly recommend it if you're interested in Bonhoeffer. She said, The confessing church seminary that Bonhoeffer formed was an innovative effort marked both by its brevity and intensity, terms commonly used to describe something doomed and futile. Indeed, its brief dates, its relatively ad hoc existence, its far-flung location distant from recognized power centers, marked it by and large as a failure, at least by the measures I know it. I know. It was not a training camp for culture warriors or political agitators. It did not promise or usher in any sweeping transformation of society. Really, it was barely an institution. It bloomed for a few precious days of history out on what must have seemed like an ed the edge of existence, more wildflower than oak. 
By all metrics in use today, it was an inconsequential vapor in the hot winds of the error. Um, but we're still talking about it, and she's still writing about it, which is what her point is. It's really, really awesome. It's a great book. Um, even after it closed, Bonhoeffer continued to train pastors illegally, and by the start of 1938, he's a known entity to the Gestapo. And they, he received his first real consequence for his resistance to the Reich. He was no longer allowed to travel to Berlin. That was his first punishment. His family still lived in Berlin. Um, uh, and within a few months of that, within a few months into 1938, all pastors throughout Germany who wanted to retain their ordination regardless of the state church or the confessing church, if they wanted to keep it, they were required to take a personal oath of allegiance to Hitler himself. This was the Reich tightening its grip around the dissenting confessing church. And the confessing church ultimately decides we will take the oath. Uh, it's a strange rendering of sort of Lutheran two-kingdom theology we could talk about, but Bonhoeffer was furious uh, that that was the choice. The world was being set on fire by a madman uh, at this point. But in the fall of 1938, in four weeks of high productivity, while seemingly supposed to be on vacation, Bonhoeffer wrote Life Together. Um, he was actually with Bethka at the time. Um, and it was where he shared his theology and his vision for the common life of Finkenwald. And this is where we want to camp a little bit, because if you remember, the title of this lecture was supposed to be about silence and solitude. Um, and we've been talking a lot about Bonhoeffer. <laughs> um, uh, and we'll pick up with the rest of his, his life in a moment, but I want to I camp out here in life together. Um, it is a book that's primarily about Christian community. Uh, we call it Life Together, but Bonhoeffer often refers to it in the book as Life Together Under the Word. Uh, that's very important for him. And in the third chapter, he articulates the need for silence and solitude in our life with God, but also our life with one another. Um, and I will try to put his thoughts in conversation a little bit with some other contemporary writers on silence and solitude. <coughs> Excuse me. But he begins the chapter, if you've read it, with characteristically strong words. He says this, Many people seek community because they are afraid of loneliness. Because they can no longer endure being alone, such people are driven to seek the company of others. More often than not, they are disappointed. They then blame the community for what is really their own fault. The Christian community is not a spiritual sanatorium. Those who take refuge in community while fleeing from themselves are misusing it to indulge in empty talk and distraction, no matter how spiritual this idle talk and distraction may appear. In reality, they are not seeking community at all, but only a thrill that will allow them to forget their isolation for a short time. He sums all this up by saying, Whoever cannot be alone should be a, should beware of community. And whoever cannot stand being in community should beware of being alone. I'm going to repeat that one. Because I probably need to hear it again. Whoever cannot be alone 
should beware of community. And whoever cannot stand being in community should beware of being alone. Bonhoeffer is a clear-eyed, no-nonsense diagnostician. He's typically German in this, I think. The inability or the refusal to be with oneself so often feeds a propensity towards using others as a means to escape our own loneliness, our own boredom, or any other negative emotion we might very well experience when we're finally free of distractions. His language of fleeing from oneself into empty talk and distraction, the distraction of others, is insightful of my own life, as it is sort of humbling and painful to admit. Ruth Haley Barton, in her wonderful book that I didn't bring over, Invitation to Solitude and Silence, actually picks up on this insight of Bonhoeffer, and she riffs on it a little bit. She says this, When we are not finding ourselves loved by God in solitude, in the company of others, we are always on the prowl for ways they can fill our emptiness. We enter life and community trying to grab and grasp from others what only God can give. The practice of silence as not fleeing from oneself. For Bonhoeffer, and I think for the wiser parts of the Christian tradition, is a silencing, is a, a stilling of one's ever-running internal monologue. And it's a silence so that one can, in fact, hear the voice of the living God more clearly that are in Scripture. So this is a word <clears throat> spoken to us, spoken to who we are apart from our accomplishments, apart from our productivity, apart from the many urgent things that we have to do or have done this day. So silence is a means where we get in contact with who we are, apart from the noise, apart from the distraction, apart from the accomplishments. And we get to this place in quiet so that we can hear God speak. Bonhoeffer says this, Silence is misunderstood as a solemn gesture, as a mystical desire to get beyond the word. Silence is the simple act of the individual who falls quiet under the word of God. In the end, silence means nothing other than waiting for God's word and coming from God's word with a blessing. The silence of the Christian is a listening silence. For Bonhoeffer, the heart of silence and solitude is our need to be encountered by God. Uh, Through gaining control of inner dialogues and learning to silence them before a prayerful, simple recitation of scripture. Yeah, he says, the time of meditation does not allow us to sink into the void and bottomless pit of aloneness. Rather, it allows us to be alone with the word. Uh, and if you've read this chapter in Bonhoeffer, and I would really encourage you to, uh, if you end up reading it after this, you might find, like I did, that Bonhoeffer really doesn't offer a lot of practical advice uh, about uh, about this. Sometimes he does. He does offer a few things. Principally, he, he encourages you to stick with a brief text, even a single word from Scripture, to go over and over and over for the week, so that we can discover, in his words, the unfathomable depths of a particular sentence and word. 
When we do that, we are doing nothing but what the simplest, most unlearned Christian does every day. We are reading the word of God as God's word to us. Now that last little bit might sound profoundly unremarkable. Uh, Bonhoeffer believed it was important to study the Bible, its original languages, which he knew, its ancient context, all of that. Bonhoeffer is reared at one of the most prestigious, disciplined, intense universities uh, that the world had known. But his fear was that all of these tools to help us understand the ancient context, the original meaning, all of the nuance that we, we missed, this was often a dry, even if it was a responsible way of engaging with Scripture. And it potentially kept the power of Scripture at arm's length. Just like we can be fleeing from ourselves when we're surrounded by community, we can likewise flee from ourselves while we're reading Scripture. So this time of silence before the Word, for Bonhoeffer, was a time of prayerful encounter. And it was not easy. I mean, we saw how all, most of these guys revolted and said, please make us, please don't make us continue uh, doing this. Um, and Bonhoeffer encourages us to use this time simply, to not use it to look for new ideas, for sermon illustrations, to desire some ecstatic experience, or to be really quick to judge its usefulness uh, when it feels like it's going absolutely nowhere. He says this, it is all too easy to be, uh, or sorry, it is all too easy to go dangerously astray in this matter. We could also probably cite many a dubious experience that can grow out of silence. Silence can be a dreadful wasteland with all its isolated stretches and terrors. It can be a desert of self-deception. Above all, it is not necessary for us to have any unexpected, extraordinary experiences while meditating on scripture. That can happen, but if it does not, this is not a sign that the period of meditation has been unprofitable. Not only at the beginning, but time and again, a great inner dryness and lack of concern will make itself felt in us. A listlessness, even an inability to meditate. We must not get stuck in such experiences. Above all, we must not allow them to dissuade us from observing our period of meditation with great patience and fidelity. That is why it is not good for us to take too seriously the many bad experiences we have with ourselves during the time of meditation. It's because these bad experiences can be the difficult work of not fleeing from ourselves, but beginning to be present to ourselves and to the reality of the life we actually have. This really resonates with the insights of Catholic writer uh, Henry Nouwen, uh, who writes about silence and solitude in many places, but for me, memorably, in this little book called The Way of the Heart. Um, he says this, um, In solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding. No friends to talk with, no telephone calls to make, no meetings to attend, no music to entertain, no books to distract, just me. Naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken. Nothing. It is this nothingness that I have to face in my solitude. It is so dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends, my work, and my distractions so I can forget this and make myself believe that I am worth something. 
But that is not all. As soon as I decided to stay in my solitude, confusing ideas, disturbing images, wild fantasies, and weird associations jumped out in my mind like monkeys in a banana tree. Anger and greed begin to show their ugly faces. I give long, hostile speeches to my enemies and dream lustful dreams in which I am wealthy, influential, and very attractive. Or poor, ugly, and in need of immediate consolation. Thus, I try again to run from the dark abyss and restore my false self in all its vain glory. The task is to persevere in my solitude, to stay in my cell until all my seductive visitors get tired of pounding on my door and leave me alone. The struggle is real because the danger is real. It is the danger of living the whole of our life as one long defense against the reality of our condition, one restless effort to convince ourselves of our virtuousness. Um, now one speaks of these distractions, like these monkeys in the tree, these wandering thoughts as unwanted attacking intruders. Bonhoeffer also speaks about distractions. Uh, and Bonhoeffer's advice is not to judge them. Uh, in fact, to even accept them when they come banging on your door. He says counterintuitively, these distractions, maybe they're things you need to pray for, possible concerns, situations, or people to intercede for. And he says, then having done that, return to the word or to the sentence of scripture on which you're meditating on. So address it and return is his thing. As he started his reflections on silence and solitude in relation to community, he ends in the same place. But he names this transforming power and the gift of silence and solitude that brings to others. He always has these things in play. Uh, They're never set against each other. He said, those who return to the community of Christians who live together after a successful day, this idea of um, a day alone, bring with them the blessings of their solitude but they themselves receive anew the blessings of community. Blessed are those who are alone in the strength of the community. Blessed are those who persevere, uh, who preserve community in the strength of solitude. But the strength of solitude and the strength of community is the strength of the word of God alone, which is meant for the individual in community. So no doubt there is way more to say about silence and solitude, even about the day alone in Bonhoeffer's. Um, chapter. But I want to move on. I want to sort of wrap up um, the story of his life, which I have found very, very compelling. Um, And I will fly over in many ways. Um, So having left the seminary, been uh, excluded from going to Berlin, coming uh, back to Bonhoeffer, he's offered the chance to leave Germany again to go back to the comfort and safety of New York City, to be a professor again, a visiting professor at Union, and to give, go on a lecture tour speaking about what life is really like in Nazi Germany. And he takes it up. He, his old friends uh, had come through for him, and he gets on a boat. This is him on the boat returning <coughs> to New York City. This would enable him to avoid mandatory, uh, mandatory military service, uh, and he would be safe from the oncoming war. And so on June 2nd, 1939, he departed uh, again for New York, and he arrived there 10 days later. But this time, 
he wasn't there for particularly long. He was there for less than two weeks. Um, Fabricki, again, in Keith to Bonhoeffer's house, writes this. But even as he boarded the ship bound for New, York, New York's harbor, Bonhoeffer already wondered whether he'd made a mistake in leaving Germany. The tormenting thoughts did not abate when he arrived. He felt more acutely that he had left loved ones behind. The weight of their suffering growing within him, they who remained in the ever-darkening nightmare of Hitler's rule. His ache was the agony of responsibility. He knew his actions mattered, even the noblest of intentions and the purest of motives, such as the, the prospect of a university position and a lecture tour in the United States and many opportunities to communicate about the situation in Nazi Germany to the world could not reframe the truths gnawing in him. His daily readings, uh, he read sections of scripture each day that he meditated on called watchwords, heightens Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer's inner ache. In the paradoxical nature of truth, his handhold on the word of God proved to be a comforting anchor of truth in the growing storm of his soul. He found some reprieve as he meditated on the verses, but he found too that the word made his inner waves pitch to new peaks. In this season, Bonhoeffer was like the prophet Jonah, but in a German retelling in which the prophet fled his own country and people. The storm was within him as much as it raged in the world, and he began to see that he too would have to be thrown overboard to return and likely be swallowed up. His journey into the safety of New York's harbor was dangerous, and the right course was toward danger, toward the crushing wheel of the state. So he wrote to those, not, he was there, he was barely in New York. Uh, he turned around more or less and went back home. He wrote to those who had arranged his safe escape saying, I've come to the conclusion that I have made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period of our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I will not have right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the, tr uh, the trial of this time with my people. So he landed back on July 26th. Again, he visited his sister on the way home. This was a little more uh, than a month before Germany invaded Poland, setting off World War II. Now, Bonhoeffer, there's lots of things I haven't been able to talk about him, but Bonhoeffer is a pacifist. He is a committed pacifist. He is, believes in nonviolence. But he's going back, and he is uh, of age that he has to be inscripted into the military. So what does he do? To avoid active military service, Bonhoeffer, kind of amazingly, is able to receive a certain military classification that allows him to work for the Abwehr, I totally mispronounced that. Uh, brr, I'm not sure. Anyway, the military intelligence. Uh, the official reason the Reich gave him this was because of his ecumenical contacts throughout Europe, because he was such a well-connected guy. Um, and they thought that Bonhoeffer would be able to get vital information from abroad and bring it back through sort of unconventional, unwatched channels. If anything, things worked the other way. Bonhoeffer would, in fact, convey information to his contacts about conspiracy against Hitler happening within Germany. So even though Bonhoeffer worked in the military intelligence department, um, he was still deeply suspect to the rivals of the sort of the departmental rivals of military intelligence, the Gestapo. Uh, he was soon banned from public speaking. He was banned from publishing anything. 
and he was required to check in regularly because they wanted to know exactly what he had been up to. And in some ways, the details of these years of Bonhoeffer's life aren't exactly clear. He was traveling quite a bit. Uh, He worked for the military uh, intelligence, but he was living a double life, essentially. Through his brother-in-law, he became involved in a, he became known, or he knew of, and thus became involved, because he was conveying information about it, a conspiracy to assassinate Hitler and establish a new government. This was a pretty radical move for a committed Christian pacifist, who believed that Hitler needed to be assassinated, and he believed that he would throw himself on God's mercy and ask for forgiveness for his participation. Bonhoeffer's value to this group was not in the planning or the action on the ground, but in, again, in his ecumenical context, keeping his trusted friends and church leaders abroad aware of what was happening within the underground German resistance. Bonhoeffer leading this double life, he kept a fake diary uh, during this time to cover his tracks. And many of his friends were deeply confused about this man who had not that long ago been leading this resistance seminary is now very much on the inside. Like what what happened to this guy? Why did he cave so quickly? He was someone who was misunderstood during this season in his own life. During this time, though, um, oh, this is him and Bethka looking at papers. Um, during this time, though, as one does under great stress and duress, uh, Bonhoeffer started seeing, uh, started a, a romantic relationship with Maria von Wittemeyer. So I like this picture in particular because Bonhoeffer at the time of the beginning of their relationship is 36 and she was 18. Uh, and age was not the only difference between them. They were very different people. They, uh, he actually had overseen her confirmation years before. Um, uh, I know, I know, boundaries. It's like, this shouldn't be happening. And it doesn't happen today, hopefully, because there's, anyway. Um, uh, but things uh, were not, even though they got, initially, like her, her mother in particular said, you can't see her for a year. She's too young. Um, but they do get engaged. Um, in spite of the age and, and very different uh, cultural kind of sensibilities. But it was not to be. <clears throat> Bonhoeffer was arrested on April 5th, 1943, and he was taken uh, to the Tegel Military Interrogation Prison. He was implicated because his name was found in the writings of another co-conspirator uh, that had been brought in. And he had to wait six months in prison before he was given a reason why he was there. And the reason he was given was that his application to join the military intelligence was improper, so that he had effectively evaded military service and undermined the military. Again, the normal punishment for that is a bullet in the back of the head right away. Um, And though he, while he's in Tegel, uh, he was interrogated... The Nazi, the the people there were not aware of the depth of his involvement in conspiracy. Uh, If they did, he would not uh, live as long as he did in Tegel. He is there for about two years. And um, this is uh, in a letter, one of the letters home he wrote. This was him speaking of uh, the first night of his imprisonment. His first impressions were horrifying. He says this, The first night I was locked in a reception cell, 
The blankets on the cot stank so abominably that in spite of the cold, it was impossible to cover oneself with them. The next morning, a piece of bread was thrown into my cell so that I had to pick it up off the floor. For the first time outside my cell came the foul curses inflicted on those detained for interrogation by the prison staff. Since then, I've heard the abuse daily from morning till night. When I had to line up for inspection with other new arrivals, we were addressed as scoundrels, etc., etc., by the warden. Otherwise, during the next 12 days, the cell door was opened only to bring me food and to take out the latrine bucket. Not a single word was exchanged with me. I was given no information about why I had been imprisoned or for how long. So not long after that, though, um, uh, Bonhoeffer's family connections become clear. He, he's treated a little bit better while he's in Tegel, um, which is a brutal place to be, Nazi interrogation happening all day long mm-hmm. down the hall. He would remain in Tegel for nearly two years. He composed uh, many letters and papers that have been collected into a famous collection. He wrote plays. Uh, he wrote poems, including... Uh, if you have read Beyond Identity, uh, uh, Who Am I? Uh, Dick's book, Beyond Identity, it includes the poem Who Am I by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is um, his handwritten version of it uh, that he wrote while he was uh, in prison. He read quite a bit, all the while hoping for his release. Uh, he had been presented with more than one opportunity to escape, but feared the repercussions for his family and friends. But he remained steadfast and optimistic that he would be released. Yet in the fall of 1944, 18 months after his arrest, the the Gestapo discovered a secret archive of the resistance group's papers. And Bonhoeffer's name was all over them. So he lost hope of relief. Uh, And he knew, because now he had been directly implicated in a conspiracy against the Fuhrer and a, a plot for his assassination. He was moved to an underground prison, uh, uh, the Reich Central Security Headquarters in Berlin. Berlin, the city that had been his home for so many years. This was a place known for profoundly inhumane torture uh, and its interrogation. He had written hundreds and hundreds of letters during his incarceration at Tegel over the previous 18 months. And after he moved to this one, he wrote three letters over the seven months he stayed there. So he more or less went radio silent with his family, with his friends, with his connections. And he was most certainly tortured while he was there. After an air raid destroyed that underground prison, uh, uh, Bonhoeffer was moved to Buchenwald concentration camp. Uh, And from there, on the morning of April 8th, 1945, um, he was moved along. And I'll... um, this is a picture of, well, I'll, uh, I'll get there in a second. I'm going to pick up, I'm just going to read the recounting of this uh, from Marsh. I think he does a really excellent job here. Um, on April 8th, in an abandoned schoolhouse in the village of Schonberg, in the hinterlands of Bavaria, Bonhoeffer and a small group of prisoners celebrated the second Sunday of Easter with a short worship service. Bonhoeffer had expressed reluctance when Hermann Punder, a Roman Catholic conspirator from the Rhineland and former senior official in the Reich, had asked him to lead the service for the men, mostly Catholics. It was not simply that he was a Protestant minister, 
though despite his lifelong attraction to Catholicism, he respected the limits of his evangelical ordination. Rather, Bonhoeffer was concerned about the effect the service might have on the morale of one of their company, a self-professed atheist. Only when the atheist insisted that Bonhoeffer oblige, he went on. Bonhoeffer read the scripture passages from the daily uh, Lausengen, which is, again, these little watchwords that he would meditate on daily. Um, Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Along with 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Not long after the service concluded, two guards arrived for him. Prisoner Bonhoeffer, get ready and come with us, one ordered. The SS transported him by bus to the concentration camp at Flossenburg. This is uh, pictures of the concentration camp uh, at Flossenburg. Um, among the several thousand prisoners undergoing the SS-designed work cure were vagabonds, beggars, pimps, gypsies, and antisocials, according to Himmler's protocol, along with the men who formed the Pink Triangle, the special section in Flossenburg for homosexuals. On the night of April 8th, in a hurried, convened court-martial, SS Judge Otto Thorlock arraigned, convicted, and condemned Bonhoeffer. No witnesses gave testimony, and the accused was allowed no defense counsel. Uh, there's actually multiple accounts of how Bonhoeffer actually died, some of which have been, uh, some feel kind of grand and theatrical, like he was hung uh, with a piano string, uh, which is not true. And then there's the, the, the physician, the camp physician, told the story that Bonhoeffer uh, knelt and prayed and went confidently towards um, the gallows. This has also been questioned, um, uh, and, and Marsh doesn't believe that's what happened uh, exactly. So um, he, he, there is a Danish commercial attaché and resistance organizer, Jorgen F.M. Morgensen, one of Bonhoeffer's fellow prisoners in Flossenburg. He dismantled the prison doctor's claims in a narrative written shortly after the camp's liberation. Those who were sentenced to death were always murdered individually, Morganson explained. The prisoner was taken from his cell and led to the washing rooms, where they undressed him and tied his arms behind his back with a strong paper cord they had previously prepared. The nude prisoner was then led to the exit in the middle of the compound and forced to walk along the building, uh, on the outside, past the windows, to the canopied place of execution, where the rope was waiting for them above the hook on the walls. The executions of April 9th, 1945, are recorded as taking an unusually long time, from 6 a.m. until noon. Though Morganson was not an eyewitness, the day after Bonhoeffer's execution, he saw in the prison courtyard an L-shaped hook. Bonhoeffer must have been hanged like animals in the slaughterhouse, Morganson concluded. Under the weight of a normal person, the hook would be elastic, so that given the appropriate length of rope, the victim would slightly touch the ground. In this way, the long duration of the hanging can be explained. Uh, Morganson goes on to say he met one of the prison guards later in the afternoon who was still visibly thrilled by all the events that had taken place. 
So Flossenberg is actually liberated two weeks later. Two weeks later. And it was just a few months after that the war in Europe uh, was over. No one has been able to find Bonhoeffer's body. Uh, they believe like thousands and thousands uh, of others. It was it was burned uh, in a Nazi kiln. Um, there's a lot more to say about Bonhoeffer and his life, and I I talked for a long time, and. Uh, this talk has turned out significantly different than I assumed it would, would when I gave the title. Um, I had read Bonhoeffer a little bit years and years ago and had remembered his, I had remembered his writing on silence. Um, I had gone through a season in my own life where silence and prayer became very significant to me and I wanted to include it in this. Um, include, uh, Bonhoeffer. But as I came back to him, I was just captivated by his life, by how remarkable and how remarkably flawed this very human person was. Uh, and so this evening has had much more Bonhoeffer uh, than I anticipated, uh, so apologies. And, um, and I think there's a lot for us to take away from Bonhoeffer's life. And if nothing else, I think we can say our seemingly vain and pre- petty preoccupations that are just sort of all our horizon when we're 21, uh, don't have to characterize the rest of our life. Bonhoeffer was much more than sort of a vain, fashion-obsessed young pastor. Um, But again, what I appreciate is the way that he holds together matters that are sometimes held or or presented as being apart. He sees the need for a rich, unsentimental life in deep community, being with our brothers and sisters, but also the need of a rich, unsentimental life and solitude, being away from our brothers and sisters and being with God. And sometimes practitioners or writers on silence and solitude find themselves leading lives away from others, away from the concerns and the trouble and the incredibly complicated nature of living the lives we've been given in the world we find ourselves. And instead, silence and solitude It's really uh, a spiritual practice that happens in isolation away from the world. Again, this was not the case with Bonhoeffer at all. And I want to end tonight with Bonhoeffer's own words, uh, though he wrote them uh, very much unaware of how his own story would unfold, and he most certainly didn't write them about them himself. But I think his life embodied uh, what he had to say about prayer, and action. Uh, and he believed that silence and solitude are components of, of Christian life and Christian community, but we still have to ask of the practice. Has this transported them, the prayer, the silent one, for a few short moments into a spiritual ecstasy that vanishes when everyday life returns? Or has it planted the word of God so soberly and so deeply in their heart that it holds and strengthens them all day long? leading them to active love, to obedience, and to good works. So I've spoken for a long time. Thank you for listening. This is, um, I forgot this, this is actually the the courtyard in Flossenburg where uh, executions would happen. Um, And these are just, uh, I was really, I think Esther did a slide like this a couple weeks ago with like resources. I was inspired by it. So a couple resources that I... There's uh, so much on Bonhoeffer. Um, 
Uh, I don't know how to navigate all of it, but these were three books that I found helpful. And then these are some other ones just on silence and solitude um, that I've also found helpful. But I would love to, t- to talk about whatever y'all want to talk about um, together. And thank you again for bearing with me. Um, yeah. Yeah, these aren't these aren't his last words. No. These were just words that he wrote in that chapter. But he said, um, well, he's just saying of the practice, we have to ask the question of it. Has it transported them for a few short moments into a spiritual ecstasy that vanishes when everyday life returns? Or has it planted the word of God so soberly and so deeply in their heart that it holds and strengthens them all day long, leading them to active love to obedience, and to good works. Yeah. That's on page 92 of this edition of uh, Life Together. Yeah, Dick. Do you have a sense that he would... Somewhere in the Life Together, he really talks of a, of a conversion or he uses the language of conversion. Was that in New York with this, in this black church? Was it afterwards? It's not. It's, it feels like it's it's somewhere in that that time. It's not. I don't. I. I it's interesting. Marsh's book is um, 300, 400 pages. I don't even know how big it is. It's a large, large enough book. He doesn't mention it. He doesn't talk about it. Or at least I missed it if he did. And states or tights, um, it plays a central part in sort of her telling of his his story. Uh, but because he wrote that letter in 1936, and he's reflecting back on 1933, so it's sometime kind of in that period in New York or po- like post New York. He's when he came back to Berlin and got ordained. He spent a lot of time working uh, in a church that was in a rough part of. Berlin, and he worked with youth, and the previous youth worker there had had zero luck in keeping the youth, and uh, he became very popular right away with the kids, and his his thing was he would just sort of tell them what the Bible, he just, he was like, we would talk about the Bible, that's more or less what we would do. Um, so, but he, yeah, he, he went from Something really changed because he was really pursuing, putting most of his energy into this sort of upward academic prestige, and then he just spends a lot of time with 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 kids, um, with you know the less than impressive group at Finkenwald, and yeah. So I don't know exactly when it is because it's not he's not exactly clear. Somewhere right across it, I have been a theologian, but I was not a Christian. I'm not a Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, yeah. Obviously, a tremendous depth yeah. of insight. Yeah. Swatting, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it definitely. Yeah. But I don't. I don't really know. I know it's somewhere up until uh, when Hitler is, becomes chancellor. Yeah. Yeah. Could you tell me your name too? Uh, yes, uh, Dale Crew. Dale, nice to meet you. I've just in there just a couple of things that have always really struck me. 
that were you know referenced by you you know in the presentation. I was thinking of the Barman Declaration, which was the statement by the Confessing Church yeah. in 1934, where Karl Barth, we referenced, was the primary author yeah, of yeah. it. Um, but I was always just struck by how their name saying that because we confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we must resist Nazi socialism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just you know, just because of our allegiance to Jesus, we cannot go along with this. And I was always struck with um, Bonhoeffer with his cost of discipleship, you know, critiquing the shallowness of the contemporary church and saying his famous lines how um, grace is free, but it's costly, mm-hmm. that it costs Jesus, uh, yeah. not cheap, that it costs Jesus his life. Yeah. It's free, it's not cheap, it's costly. And that when Jesus calls a man, he calls him to come and die. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah. just really feeling how Bonhoeffer was, you know, embodied that yeah. in his life. Yeah, yeah, sometimes against, yeah, sometimes, yeah, no, and that, yeah, the line, I think, yeah, I think so much of that, that book, um, that I haven't reread in preparation for this, but that I, I read at some point in my life, but I always think of his, um, there, he has, in the same way he says, like, those who are afraid of being alone should beware of community, he has these sort of, um, nice kind of tidy, uh, things, but he's like, um, only those who believe obey, and only those who obey believe, which is such a call, I think, against uh, where sort of a, a, a comfortable Lutheran uh, state church was. It was. We just believe, and it's, you know, it's sort of a justification by faith that doesn't have any call into obedience in life, which he, uh, yeah, clearly was not happy with. Uh-huh. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Mary Francis. I'm curious if um, this is more broad. If you could maybe, if it's possible to speak a little bit more to the connection between his practices of solitude. And yeah, yeah, and yes, yeah. And his engagement in community and how he thought about community. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm, I've read Life Together years ago. Yeah. Um, the part I often go back to that struck me, and that it's sometimes talked about with Brady, is a statement at the very beginning of the book about how you can't really enter into community until you've been disillusioned by it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this question of of sort of expectation and disillusion and, and what it actually means to engage in community. But I'm, I'm just wondering if you can make any more connections between... I love I love what you said, what he said about you know the the connection between the kind of being alone and being with others. But anyway, I'm just wondering if there's any more kind of points of contact there between that particular practice and either how he was thinking about community or how he himself engaged in it or his vision for it. Yeah, yeah. Is that clear? I think so. If I can say something is a different yeah, a different matter, but um you know, one of the um, one of the things he was bothered. So he used these. I forget how you say the word in German, but basically, it's like a text for the day. Like this is your. You get almost like my grandparents used to have a calendar. Um, that was like um, you read a verse and you pull it off. And anyway, but he. I mean, he he was a student of the Bible, but he also wanted very much to read the Bible devotionally. Um, 
and he had the, 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 a group of Moravians would would create these kind of verses for the day. I forget what they're how to pronounce what they're called. They chose them like three years in advance. Um, uh, but what bothered him, what trouble, like he would he would he would meditate on. He would be silent and meditate on these passages, um, and then he realized like. So are so are the Nazis. Like there are many Nazis that spend each day <laughs> or start each day with the same verse that I'm starting with. Uh, and so there's something about that it needs another like natural component to it. And when then yeah, when scripture can't speak into your into your life, into your community like it's not really I mean I think that's what part of what he's after with it's life together under the word like he there's sort of a theology of revelation that I I, I still don't always understand but because um, he was a really sophisticated kind of tight um, academic thinker but how does the how does the word actually speak to you transformation and, transformation. and so I think that for him, so much of that means you can't just read it in isolation. Like, you have to spend time with it yourself, and you have to live among others. And if the, the sort of the fruit of that whole community is, is, is rotten, and then there's some, yeah, there's some real issues. Um, and this is slightly different, uh, but maybe it goes somewhere. When I was in school, I wrote a paper on on him, and he wrote he gave some lectures on preaching, and he said the work of the pastor is is through first he he did say you first need before you get out your commentaries and do your exegesis and all of that which he was very firm on you need to sit silently with the scripture and hear you need to hear a word. And maybe you won't hear anything, but you still at least need to like, still need to do this process of being humble and not kind of approaching it as a master. In part because all the masters of, of theology and church history became Nazis, <laughs> so he was like, clearly this is not uh, this is not working uh, in and of itself. But he has this image where he's like, you need to hear the word of Christ first to yourself, and then your job. Is to preach that preach that word so that Jesus can walk among His people while you're preaching, and He can build His body through that. I was like, "Who is this guy? Like, what is this?" So I think he sees like some. I think he just sees them as like, again, like what he says. There, you you for a, you need both, um, and. Um, he is just so, um, he just cuts with such a sharp knife. I feel like he, you know, that line about, um, how does he say it? Those who take refuge in community while fleeing from themselves. <laughs> you know, like knowing that just being together and being a group of people, like, can be really wonderful, but... Um, it can also um, be empty and just a distraction from the reality of who you are and keep you from ever knowing who you are. So, yeah, I I, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure I could kind of run more on that, but um, 
And he he has uh, his lectures on Christology, which I think we're supposed to... Christology, the study of Jesus. I've not read them, but they sort of famously begin by saying, Christology begins in silence, which is another thing where basically you need, instead of... I think this is him in part really responding to the demythologization, whatever that word is. Yeah, yeah, Bolton was... A little bit after him, I think, but still just like his seeing like Jesus as a real person sort of being inconsequential and it's something about your feeling. Like he was like, no, we, this sort of top-down mastery, we need to come as as servants, as humble. We need to listen. Um, Yeah. Peter? Uh, Turning turning the lens a little bit, uh, in preparation for this, and in fact, sort of in your reading of Bonhoeffer generally. Um, this side of arguments and moral equivalency, how has this influenced your own view of the American church today? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because it seems as though, you know, while we're not national socialists yeah. yet, uh, <laughs> it seems to be have that. Yeah, I... Especially, I don't want to say especially, but certainly in certain aspects of the evangelical. Yeah, yeah. I should have brought it with me. There's a a book that I bought that I was like, I I think I bought it mostly because it was like $5. Um, (laughs) But then you pay $4 for shipping because anyway, and it's like, oh, it's actually $10. But um, uh, it's a book, there's a, a scholar named Stephen Haynes who teaches at Rhodes College which I think is that in Nashville? I don't know. It's in Tennessee, I think. Memphis. He has written a number of books um, that are basically the history of reception of Bonhoeffer. How have people read him? Because, man, you could... <laughs> so a lot of his writing was fragmentary. He, re- he, never, he never finished projects, and they were put out later. And if you, depending on where you start, you can kind of make Bonhoeffer say things that maybe he's not actually trying to say. But part of this book, he's got three or four books on this. I just bought the one. Um, I don't really recommend it, but um, it's called The Battle for Bonhoeffer. And he's basically tracking from Vietnam on how both sides of the political spectrum in America have used Bonhoeffer as pro-Vietnam, anti-Vietnam, pro-Iraq war, anti-Iraq war. Pro-war on terror, anti-war on terror. Pro-Obama, anti-Obama. Pro-Trump, anti-Trump. Like, it's just, it's remarkable uh, to see. And sometimes you're like, how did... Some of them seem more ridiculous uh, uh, than others. Like, using Bonhoeffer as... Um, you're just like, I, I can't imagine he would really be that excited about... Various He's used things. for the death of God as well. Yeah, uh, yeah, the death of yeah. This is even a, this is just him using him for for political purposes as opposed to him as a theologian. Um, and uh, so, in so I mean, in some ways, I have I because of that, I just feel reticent. Uh, I don't think Trump is Hitler. I don't think right. Biden is Hitler. I don't think either of them are particularly virtuous leaders. Um, uh, I definitely think Trump is more trouble than... uh, um, 
but I just, yeah, sorry, I'm just sort of moving in that, you're right, but I, I, I'm just going to say that, I was going to say there's that, but like, I, I feel like I've been more, uh, confronted as an, as an individual (laughs) by rereading Bonhoeffer, um, and, um, then feeling, feeling the need to hear criticism my own life and my own disposition before I criticize the evangelical church because it's the easiest thing to criticize right now, I think. Um, so, or the American church more, more, more broadly than just, so I just, I don't have a great, I don't have an answer for that. One of the things I really loved in uh, this I really, and this is a great way into Bonhoeffer. Um, but she ends with, um, when the Bonhoeffer house, which was his parents' house in Berlin, where he lived, you know, as uh, those, those last years of his life, he was just kind of like a nomad. He's just all over. He's a couple months here, a couple months here, but he'd always come back and be there. Um, he was there when he got arrested. So it's a museum to the family. Um, and, and to him. And when it was dedicated, Eberhard Bethke, who was Bonhoeffer's friend, gave a, gave a speech. And he, maybe I should back it up and say, like the week before, <laughs> I was talking, actually maybe like 48 hours before, I was talking to Sarah and was like, I'm doing nothing with my life. I like, I'm a man who lives in a house and walks a dog and tends fires. I don't know what I'm doing. I like, what am I doing with my life? And she, he, Bethka, in the speech that that opened Bonhoeffer's house, um, contrasted two houses. So the, the the military facility where Bonhoeffer was imprisoned for a while that got bombed, and he spoke about that because uh, there were many leaders in, uh, in the, I believe even Himmler was there. And he spoke about it as a center of, of, of strong power, uh, that flexed its muscle through, not through persuasion, but kind of pushing others down and, you know, all the violence that happened. And it's, look at it, it's, it's caved in, it's, it's destroyed, no one wants to replicate it. And he contrasted it with the Bonhoeffer house, which he called a center of weak power. Uh, which is what God uses in the world. And he said, uh, basically, it's, it's the weak power. Basically, he's basically said Bonhoeffer was a man who lived in a house who sat at a desk, talked to his friends. And, like, he is still being talked about. Uh, and he's still, and just this contrast. And I was, like, so struck with, partly because I just used the same sentence, like, I'm just a man in a house. So then him being like, he's just a man in a house. But, like, that that's what Bethka was trying to say. Like, that's what the world, like, the world needs people who follow Jesus and do simple acts of obedience to care for a family, to care for a home, to care for, to welcome guests. Um, so I was, like, kind of, I was personally quite convicted by that. And um, just the... Just yeah, I was just in, really intrigued with his life because you know you read him if you if anyone's ever read him read him he's so it's this it's not this it's this it's not this and then you read some of his letters and his biography and you're like wow he was just a person like he is not 
behind the authorial voice, which I think speaks with a lot of good authority and great insight, he, yeah, was a conflicted person. And he st- he was a night owl. He stayed up really late. Like, his hour alone in the morning when he wasn't at Finkenwald would often start at noon, or his 30-minute, because he stayed up late smoking cigarettes, uh, drinking, talking with friends about theology and politics, um, uh, playing music. Uh, he's just, he was like a very real person and not this kind of, uh, um, almost like ascetic, rigid, intense German, um, which there's nothing wrong with. I said German kind of like German as well. <laughs> I don't mean it. Anyway, I'm just talking. Uh, but I just, I have, I think that's in part why the lecture has turned so much and why I just wanted to tell more of his life story because I just, I found it quite, compelling um, and again who you are at 21 when you're obsessed with or at 40 like is not what char- needs to characterize your whole life and, and I, I found that yeah um, this is a slightly different tack but I'm just interested to know what his siblings ended up doing do, do, do they, do you know yeah uh, a couple of a, yes yeah a couple of his brothers also died a uh, brother-in-law died. Uh, a brother-in-law died the next day. Was taken out into the woods and just shot um, uh, in cold blood. And yeah, so the uh, I mean, Sabine ended up in England. Um, but yeah, I think three brothers and a cousin, or brother-in-law, sorry, uh, died in the war or in the resistance. Yeah, I mean, Carl, the father, and. They were, from early on, they were, they thought Hitler was too, even before he was a real threat when he was sort of on the rise, they just were, I don't know, this isn't the right way to put it, but like, they were basically too cultured, and they were like, this guy's just crass, he's appealing to the worst in us, and he's, he has, he just, his answers are too simplistic, and, um, so... Yeah. I think they thought he wouldn't last. Exactly. I think they, they were surprised. Yeah. Airhead. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, could you say your name? My name is Susan William. I'm from Amherst, Mass. It's my first time. Oh, thanks for coming, Susan. Yeah. Um, I uh, just, well, one thing is a German friend once who lived through World War II told us if any of us, they were all given when they got married, they were given a copy of Mein Kampf. Mm. And she said, none of us read it. If we just read it, we would have known. The guy was crazy. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I was going to say, the um, back to the point about the church and then also about you and the, the guy in the house, um, I was thinking one of the, that I hadn't thought about until this was, just he didn't, it, it just is a really uh, balanced life, isn't it? It's and about the church too. I mean, he never gave up hope on the church. There were the, you know, it, 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 he was always com- he was committed to this this ecclesia, this sort of structure of the yeah. church, the structure of community, the structure of solitude, the relationship of God. He recognized obviously along the way the importance of um, to use the transforming. Uh, being transformed, yeah. um, and so it was just this. Uh, uh, what for us is a real reminder that um, 
God uses all these graces in our lives um, to to uh, bring us and keep us to you know, keep us in His to keep us in Christ. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of a lot of ways He does this, and and Bonhoeffer obviously is committed to all of them um, with everything He could do. Yeah. And it's just, it was, it was just like remarkable to, or, 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 I feel like I keep saying that word remarkable, but like, it was so wild to me that like he wrote his first doctoral dissertation, or his, his doctoral dissertation on the church. But, and it was, a, it's a sociological look, a theological look. I've not read it. Um, uh, I started it, I will admit that, 20 years ago in grad school. Um, but, uh, he never went to church. Like at that point in his life, he'd never really gone to church. He was not attending church, but like, and it, it it does feel like as he got older, he something yeah fell in place, something clicked, something uh, was awakened in him to see the need for for community and concreteness is a word that he uses so much. Things that are concrete, things that are real. So yeah, Kathy, did you get up? Yeah. Yeah, I can't. I keep coming back to the Trinity. Yeah. And how community is within the nature of God Himself. Mm-hmm. And I just wondered if Bonhoeffer ever went there in any of his writings or explored that at all. For me, that's fascinating. Yeah. The whole thing of Jesus uh, as part of the Holy Trinity. Saw the need to go yeah. off and pray and and be by himself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he so it feels like a strange, like a he was Trinitarian, which he didn't have to necessarily be in the same <laughs> in the same way that we would kind of think think today. Like the Trinity was sort of by a lot of um, like so like Adolf von Harnack, the, this guy that I named, who was this Protestant. Um, church historian like for him he saw the trinity as like an unnecessary greek influence that showed up later in the church but really isn't there yeah. uh and who knows i mean von harnack might have actually sort of confessed it but I, I, all that i don't really know but but yeah no i i don't bonhoeffer doesn't in much detail bonhoeffer spends more time on discipleship on Christology, community, he has a lot on Revelation. But he never, uh, he never connects. He probably him. does, and I just, I just don't know all his writings well enough. Yeah, yeah. You know a lot more than I do. So oh. That's why I'm asking you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyone else? Yeah. I thought of, as I thought of the end of his life, the last stage. It seems to me one of his deep struggles there was that he was tempted to give up on the church. Mm. Because here he invested everything. God has been going to reveal himself to the church in his earlier writings. Yeah. Uh, and then he writes Cost of Discipleship, which is, look at the Sermon on the Mount. How yeah. can you possibly be so dead in the head yeah. to, to not see what he's saying and you've got to obey him? And then his confessing church fails. Yeah. Just collapses. Mm. And so in the letters and papers, you say, is this... 
is the next age a religionless Christianity yeah. without any yeah. church or anything? Yeah. He's got major doubts as to what yeah. all this is. That's why he's yeah. you know, appealed to by everybody. Yeah. Because he's just asking questions in yeah. which direction. But yeah. his, his the, the failure of the confessing church was a huge yeah. blow to his, yeah. to his uh, theology and his, his whole. Yeah. Yeah. I do. And like, well, that, yeah, one, I haven't, I don't know him as well, but one of the things that she, Kind of work. She in this book, uh, uh, Tights, I think is how you pronounce her name. She says that um, his reading of religionless Christianity would not be a, losing the church; it would be the loss of like an institutional state church. But it would keep something that would be more akin to the. But he was yeah clearly bummed, uh, <laughs> to say the least, which is yeah a huge understatement. But just. Yeah, discouraged, and I, I do think had given up um, some, yeah, some very, re- I mean, it was understandably church cynical. Was. Yeah, the church as it was, mm-hmm. like, moving forward, whatever religionless, mm-hmm. a religionless age would look like, things would have to be, would have to be different, but yeah. yeah. Um, anyone else have any questions or anything? I feel like we can um, I can stop it. All right, well, thank you all. Thank you.